You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Happy New Year, everybody. And hey, a quick shout out to all the federal employees out there who aren't working and are going without pay right now. A special shout out, of course, to all the federal employees out there who are working and are going without pay right now. Like all the surprisingly cheerful TSA agents at SeaTac Airport who screened my bags and x-rayed my junk the other day. And federal employees, of course, are out of work or out of pay or both because our nuclear-armed toddler-in-chief shut down the government. The same government that, as of this recording, his party retains complete control of. They've got every single branch until January 3rd. So it would seem that no one, not even a majority of Trump's fellow Republicans, really want to pay for his fucking wall, as the former president of Mexico calls it. It's a wall that, number one, we don't need. The number of people crossing the border by land is falling and has been falling for years. And most people in the country illegally got here via plane with legal student or tourist visas that they've overstayed. And number two, Trump promised his voters That victoriously racist and racistly victorious minority of Americans who went to the polls in 2016, he promised those assholes that Mexico would pay for his fucking wall, which is why the former Mexican president felt entitled to weigh in on the subject, dropping F-bombs all over the place. And the odds that Trump will get his fucking wall, that he'll be able to stick the American taxpayer with the bill for his fucking wall, those drop off a cliff after Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats take control of the House of Representatives which will be in, let me see, 52 hours and 36 minutes. Not that anyone's counting. Ah, who am I kidding? Everyone is counting. Anyway, Happy New Year, everybody, and goodbye and good riddance in the new year to Paul Ryan, to single-party rule, and to 2018, a year in which Donald Trump lied to the American people on average 15 times a day. He lied yesterday on New Year's Eve about being at work in the Oval Office when he was not And a big hello, a huge hello to 2019. Hello to you, Speaker Pelosi, and to you, Congresswoman AOC, and to you, Candidate Warren. Trump will continue to lie his lying face off in 2019, of course, but now there's a chance that Trump will be held accountable for the lies he's told and the children he's killed and the crimes, the other crimes, Trump and his cronies and his appointees and his despicable children have committed. Here's hoping we impeach the motherfucker already in 2019. And speaking of impeaching the motherfucker already, we made another round of donations to the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project at the end of 2018, bringing the total amount of money raised for these three great organizations through sales of ITMFA merch to a quarter of a million dollars. So a big thank you to everyone out there who purchased ITMFA tees and mugs and hats at itmfa.org. And I have a feeling... I have a hunch, I have a hope and a dream and a prayer that we won't be selling ITMFA gear when 2020 rolls around. Because I am predicting here and now that the motherfucker will have been impeached by then. I guess you could say I'm feeling optimistic about the new year. I hope you guys are too. So here's to more good news, more indictments, more sex, and a whole lot less Trump in the new year. 
All right, coming up on the Magnum version of this week's show, the Magnum edition, twice as long, no ads, more guests, more calls. You can subscribe or give it as a gift at savagelovecast.com. On the Magnum, I speak with Sophie St. Thomas about her article in Playboy titled, Are Some People Just Slapping the Poly Label on Their Cheating? We get to the bottom of that one. And on both the micro and Magnum editions, I bring in a sex toy expert to discuss the average shelf life or the average bedside table life of your above average vibrator. And now, your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a young girl in the Southwest, and I have a question for you about public sex. I love it. My boyfriend and I, we like being sneaky, like I feel like a lot of people do. But we were starting to chat about it, and I was wondering, what just morally might be bad public sex? Anything can be wrong and bad if you get caught, but what do you think is just like a moral limit to public sex? Obviously, nowhere near children, but would sneaking it in a city park be bad on a beach? What would you say? Your call reminded me of a story uh, I read some years ago about a park in Amsterdam where gay men went to cruise and children went to swim and people went to walk their dogs. And sometimes these people would bump into each other. And rather than chase the gay men out of the park, rather than call in the cops, they put up signs indicating to people where the gay cruising areas were so that people didn't stumble into them all unawares. Things are arranged so that each group can relax in their own area without intruding on each other. A municipal spokesperson told a French newspaper, the signs clearly indicate what is happening in each zone. Also, those where gay men are known to practice cruising. Now, that kind of ruins a little bit of what makes public sex arousing. Like part of the reason why a lot of people who enjoy public sex get off on public sex is the risk, is the danger, is the naughtiness. They might get caught. Somebody might see. For some people, that is a part of what makes it sexy. And of course, if you're turned on by somebody seeing you have sex who didn't want to see you having sex, that has the potential in some instances, in some cases for some people to alarm them, to scare them. You are really kind of involving this person in the expression of your kink against their will without their consent. And that is a problem. And that is a moral problem. You know, if your whole thing is being seen by others, then yeah, your public sex thing is morally problematic. But if what you get off on is just a little bit of risk, a little sense of danger that you might get caught, but you probably won't get caught, that somebody might see you, but really the odds are no one is going to see you. And you go into a public park late at night and you find a very dark spot where even if somebody should walk by, unless they're shining a flashlight, they're not going to know exactly what was going on. They're not going to get an eyeful. Maybe they'll get an earful. They're not going to get an eyeful. And I think that's allowed you know, our species evolved for many, many, many millions of years before there were bedrooms with doors that we were expected to go in whenever we wanted to fuck. All sex for human beings was public sex. All sex still for most mammals and animals and birds and snakes and insects and critters and turtles is still public sex. Our thing for private sex is, what's that word that haters like to throw at the gays? Our thing for private sex is, oh right, unnatural 
Anyway, I'm kind of vamping. I'm kind of feeling this one out. If you're fucking in public because you want to be seen and you want to be seen by people that are going to be alarmed by having seen you, that's assholery. That's morally impermissible. If what you want is to have sex on a beach under the stars or sex on a mountaintop under the blue sky or sex in a public park in the dark, in the woods, in the trees, in the grass, and you make some effort not to be seen, you make some effort to find a place where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, where the odds that someone is going to stumble over you are very, very slim. Well, that is, I believe, morally permissible. I believe that you can do that. And even if somebody should, you know, come up along that trail that you took to the top of that mountain or come over the sand dunes to the spot on the beach where you're fucking or be walking their dog through the park and get an earful, if not an eyeful, because it's the middle of the night. What have they really learned? That sex is a thing that people do? That sex exists? Well, everybody knows that. They've all probably seen much worse on their phones. And when you consider what people see when they stumble over people fucking in public who've made a good faith effort not to be seen, they're not getting, you know, hot lights glistening off rectal or vaginal mucus as a dick slams in and out of an orifice. They're getting just this image of two people pressed against each other and the awareness that, oh, these two people are fucking. And I don't think it's news to anyone that fucking is something that two people sometimes do when they are in a spot where they believe themselves to be alone together and have, even if it's in a public area, a reasonable expectation of privacy. So I disagree with the people who say all public sex is problematic, all public sex is potentially violating other people's consent. Public sex, where you make an effort to be seen. Public sex, which is about exhibitionism and voyeurism, where you are making voyeurs out of people who don't wish to be voyeurs. Yeah, that's not okay. Public sex where you might get caught, but you probably won't. And even if you do, they're not going to see that much. I don't think that's morally problematic. I don't think that's impermissible. However, most police departments disagree with me. Now, it sounds like you're a straight couple. You're unlikely to be arrested and hauled in for public indecency. When a straight couple gets caught having sex in a public park, particularly a young straight couple, they usually get an amused police officer or officer is telling them to take that home. But if it's a same-sex couple, a male couple, a gay couple, yeah, they get a trip downtown in the back of a police car. So you need to assess your unique circumstances, whether you're gay or straight, same-sex, opposite-sex couple, you need to assess your levels of privilege before you make that decision about having sex in public. And if you want to have morally permissible, if still slightly problematic, sex in public, you want to have sex in a public place where the public is highly unlikely to see you. Hey, Dan. I have a question about vibrators. Over my life as a vibrator user i've noticed that every few years they will my vibrators will die like the battery will die it'll stop working and i always wonder how is the best way to recycle or throw them away am i supposed to just throw them in the trash am i supposed to recycle them is there a special vibrator center where i can drop them off so that they can be sustainably recycled or thrown away and then my other question is, is this normal? Are they supposed to die after three to five years? I feel like for the money that they cost, they should last longer. But um, it's been my experience that after a couple of years, they die and won't charge anymore and stop working. So do you have any recommendations for ones that will last longer and so that I won't 
be in this predicament in the first place. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Sarah from Early to Bed, Chicago's kick-ass feminist sex shop. Hey, Sarah, how you doing? I'm good. Hi, thanks. Uh, thank you for, for jumping on the phone. Oh, thank you. Thank you for jumping on the phone. I really <laughs> appreciate it. I imagine as Chicago's feminist sex shop, you sell a lot of vibrators and not a lot of real dolls. You, no, we sell a lot of vibrators and just about zero real dolls. So yes, <laughs> we are basically a vibrator store. Okay, so I have a vibrator. I have a Hitachi Magic Wand uh, that Terry and I bought 22 years ago, and it mm-hmm. still works. And it's not like we only use it every once in a while. Like that thing has seen a lot. <laughs> that thing has been yeah, through a I lot. Um, we should start a fund for a therapy uh, program for our <laughs> vibrator. Uh, so I, I don't relate to this problem. It's not my experience of basically the only vibrator we've ever owned. Uh, it has lasted forever. Uh, it's the, the Chevy, you know, of vibrators. So is this normal for vibrators to be crapping out for this caller's vibrators to be ca- crapping out after three to five years? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Hitachi Magic Wand is unique in the world in that 20 years is kind of like an average lifespan for it, if not more. I just had someone in the store this week who, after 20 years, they had to replace it. Um, But pretty much any other vibrator on the market, whether it's um, rechargeable or battery operated, is going to have a lifespan of, you know, a couple months if it's an inexpensive like a, little, operated one like a little bullet a vibrator years. or something or a, one of the sort yeah. of cheap plastic silver bullet vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can, and those can't, everything can last longer than, you know, it can last for years, but one should not expect it to last many years, especially if you're spending, you know, 10, 20, $30 on a better operated one for rechargeable ones. You can get a couple years out of them, take care of them. You might get five years out of them, maybe more, but they're, not going to last forever. They're not going to have the longevity of something that like the magic wand, which is made by an appliance manufacturer, not a sex toy manufacturer. Oh, so it's sort of like a cross between kind of the Hitachi magic wand is kind of a cross between a dishwasher and a Galapagos Island turtle. (laughs) Like it's well-made and it's going to live forever. Okay. I was like, yeah, I don't know where you're going with that. But yes, (laughs) no, I think you're right. It's well-made. It's going to last not forever, but it's going to last a really, really long time. It will outlast, you know, you know, a lot of relationships and marriages and children living in the home. So yeah, it's definitely the way to go. And I cannot think of another single sex toy that's going to have that longevity. Okay. So, um, so we've, de- we've determined that this is normal, that her, that is normal yes, for her vibrators absolutely. to have a shelf life and a crotch life of about three to five years. So what do you do with your vibrator when it dies? Where do vibrators you know, go after they die? They have to, they, we, there's no great, there's no great solution. There's no one that I know of in the U.S. right now who's recycling them. Anybody who was recycling them is no longer recycling them. I have spent hours on the phone calling everybody in Illinois, you know, finally trying to get them to listen to me to find a place where we could recycle them. Um, and I finally like talked to the EPA in Illinois who was laughed at me and then we're like, just throw them away. There's nothing, we're not going to, no one wants to recycle those. And so we have not been able to find any place to recycle them. I can't, as far as I know, your best bet is to repurpose them. Thanks. And what, it's kind of sad that it's this landfills for vibrators, right? It is. And I would, I mean, I think it's, you know, the, the people who make the vibrators, I think it's unconscionable that they're creating these products and they're not providing for the recycling of them. Like they, if you put on your container, you know, they all say don't throw away on their boxes and they should, if you're going to label something, don't put this in the landfill. You should, make sure there's an alternative place to put it. So I find it extremely frustrating, but it is what it is. So, you know, in answer to her second question, there isn't 
other vibrators, you know, she's spending a lot of money on these, but there's not like higher end vibrators that she can buy where she will avoid this problem. I don't think, I think from what I know commercially available in my experience, there is not, you can spend as much as you possibly can on a vibrator. It's not going to mean it's going to last longer than that. There are some companies that have five, 10 year warranties. They don't necessarily mean they'll replace the vibrator. They might just give you a discount on another vibrator. If you're, toy doesn't work in you know, 10 years, but that's super rare. And I can't even remember off the top of my head who that is. But I think a really important thing is anybody who buys a vibrator, be sure you um, hold on to your receipt, register it. If the company has a registry for their warranty and take advantage of warranties through the store or their companies, because, you know, you can't get your vibrator replaced with one, two, three, four, and five year warranty. So it's good to just know that that's an option for most rechargeable vibrators. Sarah from Early to Bed, Chicago's feminist sex shop. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was very clarifying. I will be happy to do anytime. Thank you. Have a great day. You too, Sarah. Thanks. Hi, Dan. I'm a gay male. In the wake of the Me Too movement, I just feel a bit awful about something I did when I was 15 years old. I, um, I knew that this guy who was a year older than me. Um, would get really drunk and pass out. And uh, we went out drinking beer until he passed out and then um, went to his parents' house, which they happened to be away for the weekend. And when my friend was passed out, I went and got a jar of Vaseline, that's a long time ago, and fucked his ass and came inside of his ass and he did not feel a thing. He did not wake up. And I know a lot of people have told the story saying that it's impossible. But if you've ever been around drunks or people that drink a lot and pass out, they don't feel a thing. They don't hear a thing. They're out. And then I spend the night. And then the next day, nothing was talked about. I don't recall all the details of did I wipe his ass after or... but. I feel like I raped somebody, which I did, and I've had long relationships over the years, and I'm a normal person now, and I just feel like what I did years and years ago is awful, and uh, I don't know where this person is. Um, I've never seen him. I guess our friendship uh, ended, and uh, I didn't see him for years. I haven't seen him for like 30 years. Anyway, um, what do I do? How do I, how do I deal with this? I've been kind of telling the story my whole life was laughing for a while about it. You know what I did? Ha ha ha. I was a kid and I, you know, fucked this guy in the ass. But now I'm thinking like, this was fucking horrible and I have to live with this. So, um, yeah, let me know how I should, uh, deal with this. You feel like you raped someone because you did rape someone. And I'm glad you feel awful about this now because you should feel awful about this. You should have felt awful about this when you did it and in the years after. It's disturbing to hear you talk about when you used to share this as an amusing anecdote with friends that you raped. At age 15, you were a minor, impaired judgment. But at 15, you raped a defenseless friend. You took advantage of someone in a premeditated fashion. You knew that he would drink until he blacked out. You went out drinking with it. I don't need to rehearse this for you. You know what you did. You recounted what you did. But it, the fact that it was so coldly premeditated, you went out drinking with this buddy knowing he got blackout drunk so that you could take the opportunity once he was blackout drunk to, to fuck his ass when he was defenseless and helpless. 
is just incredibly disturbing. And I'm glad that at this late date, you are disturbed by it as you should be. But what do you do? It was 30 plus years ago. You, you don't know where this person is now. It's possible that he never knew what happened to him. But, you know, as one gay man to another gay man, you usually can tell the next morning, the morning after your ass has been fucked, that your ass was fucked. Particularly if someone came inside you. And so odds are, I think, pretty good that he knew at the time, perhaps, that that he was aware at the time that something happened. But your friendship continued for more years. You say you lost touch with him around age 20. So maybe he didn't know. And getting a call from you out of the blue to apologize for this thing that he may not be aware happened or a call from you all these years later so that you could unburden yourself and apologize to him and put him in a position where he needs to offer you absolution because you feel terrible about this now is requiring, as the kids say, emotional labor from him that you don't have a right necessarily to ask for or expect. So what do you do with these terrible, terrible feelings that you're struggling with at this moment? So inspired by the Me Too movement to assess your past behaviors and to see them in a new light. Although I have to say that I'm shocked that it took the Me Too movement coming along for you to see this for what it was. I believe that you should have been able to see that at age 15. But you didn't. And you say you feel terrible and you want to know what you can do. Well, I don't think you should contact this guy out of the blue to confess to apologize and then put him in a position where he feels like he has to offer you absolution or you let him know that this happened and then he's traumatized to discover all these decades later that he was raped. Yeah. So I don't think you should call him one in 10 victims of rape is uh, male. According to rain, the rape abuse and incest national network well, Rain also runs a hotline, uh, offers counseling, offers crisis counseling to people who've been victims of sexual assault or sexual violence. And I think making a large annual donation to Rain or writing Rain into your will and leaving them a significant chunk of money upon your death would be a good way to make amends not to this person, because again, I don't think you should contact your victim, but make amends to the universe to make something positive come from these new feelings of guilt and responsibility that you're struggling with, because you would be then helping other victims, male and female of rape and sexual violence and incest who may reach out to rain in the future because they have been on the receiving end of the kind of violence that you inflicted on this helpless teenage boy, this friend of yours so many years ago. Hey, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old gay man living in the Southwest. Uh, here's my situation. Uh, so when when I was younger, my older brother made my childhood hell. Um, he physically and mentally abused me all the time, uh, always beating me up and putting me down any chance he got and making me terrified that if I told my mother, he would make it worse. Uh, things got a lot worse when I was 11 years old. He actually molested me. Uh, he tried to rape me. He did not succeed in doing that, but all the other things that he did to me that night definitely traumatized me. He only did the molestation that one time, but he continued to physically and mentally abuse me throughout my childhood. I suppressed that memory and the molestation for quite a while. I just 
dealt with the other abuses. That's what older brothers do. They pick on their little brothers. Then about a year ago, everything came out. Uh, I was having nightmares reliving that night that he molested me. Um, couldn't concentrate at work. It sent me into really bad depression. So I went to a therapist. And through therapy, I was able to accept what happened to me. Um, during that time when I was trying to make myself better, I completely cut my brother out of my life. I went several months without communication with him. Um, and then my therapist actually suggested that I write a letter to him when I was ready. So I did. And the biggest thing I put in the letter was I want an acknowledgement for what he did to me. Or if he didn't acknowledge it, then I would tell the whole family what he did. And he wrote me back. He acknowledged what he did and he apologized. And he kind of flipped the script on me. He said when he was younger, he was also molested and bullied all the time. He pretty much said that, yeah, I had it bad, but so did he. So it's not that big of a deal. So now I kind of feel stuck. I didn't get the closure that I wanted from this. And I feel like he's saying what he did to me was not his fault because, you know, he went, he went through it too. So now he wants to mend our relationship. And so does my mother. You know, she knows about the bullying that he put me through now. And she thinks that's the only reason why me and my brother don't talk very much. I really don't want to tell her about the molestation because I feel like that would really tear our family apart. But I really do want to put this past me and I'm not sure if I really can mend this relationship with my brother. Should I even try to mend this relationship? Maybe go back to therapy and try to work things out? Or should I just cut them off completely? First, I'm really sorry uh, about how you were abused. Sibling abuse is a kind of domestic violence that's rarely discussed or acknowledged. Uh, and you were certainly the victim of that particular kind of mental, physical, and sexual violence. Uh, and I ache for you. I really do. You reached out to your brother uh, about what he'd done to you. You contacted him. And what you say you wanted was an acknowledgement. And you really didn't get an acknowledgement. Yes, he acknowledged, he, he admitted, he, he recognized what he did. But then he mentioned, he asserted that he too had been the victim of abuse. And that's very common. It is very common for children who are being bullies or being sexually violent to have been victimized themselves. And they are inflicting on some other helpless child the kind of violence that was inflicted on them. But your brother in his letter back to you soured the acknowledgement by telling you that he was a victim too. And so it's not that big a deal. That's not taking responsibility. You wanted an acknowledgement that was about taking responsibility. And his acknowledgement was about deflection. That's not taking responsibility for what he did. Even if he himself was the victim of this exact same kind of violence at the hands of some other child, adult, he has to take responsibility for what he did, for the choices he made, even as a child. It doesn't sound like he mentioned his abuse to contextualize what he did to you. He mentioned his abuse. He brought up the abuse that he suffered to rationalize what he did to you, to explain it away, to minimize it. And that was not the acknowledgement that you needed, an acknowledgement that minimized what he put you through for years and years and years culminating in that act of sexual violence and then the other types of violence persisting after. Yeah, I can understand why you might not want to have any relationship with your brother going forward. 
when that's the reaction you got. You didn't get an acknowledgement. You got a pushback. So what do you do? Well, you don't have to have a relationship with your brother. You don't have to pretend to have a relationship with your brother to please your mother. You have to ask yourself, and I think this is something you should unpack at great length with your therapist, whether you want to have a relationship with your brother or not. And if the answer is no, if the only reason you're contemplating continuing to run at this person who didn't acknowledge, deflected, rationalized, pushed back when you confronted him about the terrible things that he had chosen to do to you, yeah, you are not obligated to continue to see that person. You have to do what's best for you in this circumstance. If thinking about having an adult relationship with your brother is painful, painful to contemplate. If continuing to work on this is something that you are doing not for yourself, if it's something that you are thinking about doing for your mother to keep the peace in the family, to make Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever the fuck less stressful, if those are the only reasons you're doing it, if you're doing this for other people and not for yourself, choose not to do it as awkward as that might be for your mother, she'll have to eat it because you have to look out for your mental health and you have to get to a place not where you can really ever put this behind you. This will be with you all your life, but you need to get to a place where it's easier for you to live and walk with this. And if in conversations with your therapist, if when you do some serious introspection, You can imagine that it's easier to walk and live with this without your brother in your life. And absolutely, you have a right, even perhaps a responsibility to yourself, to cut your brother out of your life once and for all. Uh, Greetings, everybody. I'm just wondering, sometimes my teenage girls get in the car and I'm listening to the Savage Lowcast and sometimes they pick up a little bit of information and sometimes they're like, oh, you're crazy, mom. But I'm wondering, what do you think is a good age for teenagers to be listening to the Savage Lowcast? Uh, I think you have so much great information. I'm all about them listening to it. And sometimes they're interested, sometimes they're not. I'm definitely not going to force them to listen to it. But what, what do you think on, on the appropriate age level for your content? You know, every once in a while, someone comes up to me in the airport or in a restaurant and tells me that they've been listening to the Savage Lovecast and or reading my column since they were 10 or 11 or 12 years old. And that freaks me the fuck out. I can't really record the show. And I certainly can't write the column. If I'm thinking about that reader or that listener, that prepubescent reader or listener, because yeah, I don't think 10, 11, 12 is an age that someone should be listening to the love cast or reading savage love 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 though. I think those kids are old enough to listen to the Savage Lovecast because those kids have access to the internet and those kids know what sex is. And those kids may have seen a lot of pornography that gives them a warped idea about what sex and adult relationships are like. And the conversations we have here on the show with guests, the conversations that we have with callers about their issues and problems, I think those are beneficial. And I think 13, 14, 15-year-olds who are interested enough to seek the show out or find the column and read it are mature enough 
to listen to the show or read it. I don't think you should force your kid at 13, 14, 15 to listen to the show. And I remember what it was like to be 13, 14, 15 years old. You didn't want to listen to a sex show or really watch a, you know, a love scene in a movie in the living room with your mom or dad in the room. It was embarrassing. So I can understand why your daughters are performing their embarrassment when they get into the car and mom is listening to that crazy smut podcast where people talk about their sex problems. Your daughters, however, if they're seeking the column or the podcast out on their own, when they're not in the car with you, they're listening to it on their own phones. I'm fine with that. I don't have a problem with that. I think that would be good. I think it'd be good for young people, not just to listen to my sex and relationship podcast, but to a handful of sex and relationship podcasts to get different perspectives and hear different voices. But this idea that some people have in their head that kids aren't hearing about sex, aren't thinking about sex, aren't talking to each other about sex, aren't viewing any materials online that perhaps they shouldn't be like pornography. Yeah, that... I don't know how people get that into their heads, that kids aren't curious about sex or fascinated about sex. It's almost as if we all go through puberty and then we hit about age 25 and we completely forget what it was like to be 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old and obsessed with sex. And often with so little information easily available to us to help us understand what we are going through or what we're going to be going through once we become sexually active. So yeah, I think kids, teenagers should be listening to my show. Like I said, a lot of adults seem to hit age 25 and forget what puberty was like and project onto kids who are currently going through puberty a kind of innocence or naivete or lack of interest in sex that certainly didn't characterize their own puberties. And adults out there who've forgotten what puberty is like, I would encourage them all, while their kids listen to the Savage Lovecast, to watch Big Mouth on Netflix, which is a show about middle school students going through puberty. It is really fucking smart. And it is triggering in good ways. It helps you remember what it was like, what that time in your life was like. And some of what you'll see are kids without a lot of information, harming themselves, harming others. And some of what you'll see or reacquaint yourself with is what it was like when you were suddenly very compelled by sex, very interested in sex because of the changes you were going through because you had a hormone monster stalking you and to not have a lot of good information at hand, not have a lot of context for your feelings or to be in a position where you could only get information from your peers who didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. So yes, in conclusion, teenagers should be listening to my podcast, I believe, and adults should be watching Big Mouth so they remember what those years were like, and they can then understand why it is a good idea for the teenagers that they're raising to be listening to my fucking podcast. Hey, Dan. Bye, Mail. Been wanting to call about a lot of things, but I think the one thing I need help with right now is the line of helping your parents through a divorce. Uh, my dad has gone through a really rocky divorce with his wife, my stepmom, and vented and involved me in ways that I think are unfair. Went on to say that he has nobody else to talk to. I might add that he is the CEO of a guidance center, uh, works with mental health, sexual abuse. But yet, I just don't know how to talk to him and I don't know where to draw the line. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the children's involvement in divorce, adult children. 
Of course, adults should not involve children in their divorces. Shouldn't put children in the middle, whether those children are five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 11, 12 years old, or whether those children are in their 20s or 30s. And your father, more than most, should be aware of that. He is in the mental health field. You say that he has no one else to talk to, and that is demonstrably untrue. Your father can talk to a therapist. You need to set a boundary. When he starts pulling you into the conflict, when he starts putting you in a position where you feel like you're being asked to take sides, and this is your stepmother you're talking about, but if she was in your life for a very long time, she played a maternal role in your life, you may have feelings for her that are still legitimate, feelings of affection, feelings of gratitude, may even still love this person, that when he brought her into your life, he asked you to love and accept And it is not fair now that their marriage has fallen apart and it's a high-conflict, acrimonious divorce for your father to involve you in this way. And you should say to your dad, if I was five years old and you were doing this, you would know it was wrong. You would know not to do this. Well, the fact that I'm 25 years old or 35 years old, I don't know how old you are, it is still not fair to do this. This makes me very uncomfortable. You're going to have to use your words. You're going to have to get a little bit confrontational. You can say to him, I sympathize. I empathize. I understand that this is a very difficult time. I am here for you. And when I am here for you, let's talk maybe generally about the fact that you're upset. And then let's talk about other shit. Let's do some other shit. Let's enjoy each other's company. How can I help you move forward from this breakup instead of wallowing in the pain of it? Does that just mean socializing, hanging out? Do you want my help setting up an online dating profile when the time comes? I will help you do that. But I can't help you process your anger with my stepmother. And that is unfair for you to ask me to do that. So I am not going to do that. And if you need to talk to somebody, it sounds like you do need to talk to somebody. Get a shrink. Get a therapist. Or make and burden a friend with this. But you cannot burden your child with this. And you have been. But it stops now because I, as your child, am telling you that when you start going off, when you start blowing up at me about my stepmother, about your ex, I am going to hang up the phone or I'm going to leave the room because it's not fair to me. And it stops now. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a straight cis male in a monogamous relationship from the Northeast. My question isn't about sex, but it's actually about marriage. I was thinking about changing my last name and being that usually when you get married, the female changes their last name. It's kind of unusual. So I thought maybe this question, I haven't seen it on your show. So I was kind of just wondering your thoughts. I, the only person I know in my life is I had a high school physics teacher who had changed his last name. Um, but other than that, I don't really hear too many examples of men changing their names to be um, their wife's name. And I kind of brought this up with my family, uh, just kind of playing the idea around. And they kind of got a pretty negative reaction of like, why are you doing this? And just kind of, you know, because kind of seems like a betrayal. Because if I change my last name, that means our kids, our future kids, would have, wouldn't have their last name. So it's kind of like, it does kind of create some extra drama that I wasn't even really thinking about when I originally thought about it. I was kind of just wondering if like any of your listeners or anybody has 
experience with this, it seems like a pretty unusual case. I mean, one of the main reasons why I wanted to change my last name is because my future wife, she's a doctor and she has like a reputation with her name. She published on her name. She has patients who know her by her, her name. So it doesn't really make sense for her to change her name. And we could just not change her names. It seems like you and Terry um, haven't changed your names. So I'm okay with that. But I thought like, why not change my last name? I mean, I don't really care. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts, any of your listeners, whether this, you know, makes sense and just how to roll it out to people. There's an article you might want to go read in The Atlantic, look for Why Don't More Men Take Their Wives' Last Names by Caroline Kitchener. According to Caroline, according to the studies that she cites, 72% of adults think a woman should take her husband's name when they marry, and more than 50% of adults believe that it should be a legal requirement that women take their husband's name. And fewer than 3% of men take their wives' names when they marry. Wasn't always the case. There are instances cited in the article. There are cases where men have taken their wives' names. If the wife was from an older, more prominent, or wealthier family in England in the 18th century, it was common for the man to take the wives' name. But for most of human history, most Western cultures, the wife took the husband's name. One more remnant of the kind of property transaction nature of quote-unquote traditional marriage where, you know, like the father giving away the bride, the man who fathered the child, presenting that child to the man who's about to marry that child at the altar, handing it off. And for a lot of recorded human history, the wife was the property of the husband, legally the property of the husband. That ain't the case anymore. Marriage now is whatever the two people in a particular marriage say that it is. You get to write your own rules. You don't need my permission to take your wife's name. If you wish to take your wife's name, you can do that. You can hyphenate your names. Your wife can take your name, but still continue to use her name professionally. You don't need my permission. You don't need my listener's permission. You don't need a sense of the Savage Love Senate before you figure out what it is that you want to do. What do you want to do? If you would like to take her name, fuck your family. Fuck their negative reaction. Take her goddamn name. Your marriage is yours to shape. And these are choices that you get to make and no one else gets to make them for you and no one else can impose the choice that they wish you would make in your marriage on you or your marriage. Your marriage can be opposite sex. These days can also be same sex. You can have a Southern Baptist-ish marriage where the wife is joyfully submissive to the husband or you can have a female-led femdom marriage. You guys can have kids or not have kids. You can live in one house or you can have two separate apartments. One of the first married couples that I got to know and be friends with, they had two separate apartments because although they loved each other and they wished to be married, they didn't live together very well. They found that living together put strain on their relationship that was unpleasant, so they maintained two separate households rather than merging households. And that was the key to their success as a couple. That made their marriage successful by writing their own ticket, by doing it their own way, by not letting anyone else tell them how they had to do marriage. Marriage is how you want to do it. Your marriage is how you want to do it. My marriage is how I want to do it. Terry and I didn't take each other's last names and we didn't hyphenate them either. When we had children, he kept his, I kept mine. We are 100% married. You can take your wife's name or she can take your name or you can create a hyphenate or you can keep the names that you have now and you are 100% married. 
We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Sophie St. Thomas, a queer sex writer and speaker based in Brooklyn, whose terrific work can be found in Playboy, GQ, Allure, Glamour, Vice, and other publications. She wrote an article earlier this year called Are Some People Just Slapping the Poly Label on Their Cheating for Playboy? Hey, Sophie, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Dan? I'm good. Uh, Thank you for jumping on the phone today. I read your article and I really liked it and I really vibed with it. For folks out there who didn't get a chance to read it, who haven't caught it, can you unpack it for us a little bit quickly? Sure. So I both professionally and personally have been researching various relationship formats and ethical non-monogamy. God, since I want to say since I moved to New York in 2010, but the truth is that even in college and high school, I was writing about this stuff because I grew up in a household where there was lots of infidelity, but also love. And I remember from a young age being like, why don't they just be honest about the fact that they can't be monogamous? And then my parents can stay together. Maybe a little mm-hmm. too high. But long, I've been following the ethical non-monogamous community for a long time. And I noticed over the past few years, it has become more mainstream, more accepted. And there are so many pros to that. You know, people are less likely to be harassed or given a hard time. They have more partner options. Or or lose their jobs or have their children taken away from them, which has happened to poly people in the past. Yeah. No, you're completely correct. But the downside is that I feel like people are using, I don't feel like I know because I've written about it and interviewed folks about it and experienced it personally. People learn about polyamory and think, oh, I get to date and do and sleep with whoever I want. And one, conflate the term polyamory, which very specifically translates to many loves in Latin and implies that you're having more than one romantic relationship with more than one person with open relationships or ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy, which is an umbrella term for, for every couple, there's a form of relationship. And but they're using this term poly, but not living up to its standards. And for instance, I had a dude who told me he was poly and we were both seeing other people and keeping up with it. And then he totally fell off the face of the earth. And when I finally got him to talk to me, I was like, where have you been? What happened? And he was like, oh, I met this other girl named Emily. And sorry, things are really serious between us. And so I'm going to have to end things. And I was like, do you know the definition of polyamory? (laughs) You know, he was like, I told you I was poly and that I'd be seeing other people. And I was like, yeah, but that's not, that doesn't, you're, you're just cheating, dude. And so ghosting, you're ghosting. Yeah. And, and it really upsets me. I mean, that was a personal example. So obviously that one, but it upsets me because I do know and see people who have, done who and the people you're talking about who lost their jobs who for decades have been fighting for the rights to have for the freedom to live in relationships and family structures the way that best suits them and when douchebags like that misuse the term to basically excuse bad behavior or maybe they're not bad people maybe they just haven't done their research fully maybe they're still exploring but because well, well, because like you said, polyamory means you, you know as, as understood and and sort of packaged and rolled out by people who practice polyamory. It's concurrent, committed, 
romantic relationships. And, you know, to have a committed relationship, first you have to date. Not yeah. all dating relationships turn into committed relationships, but it posits or centers, to use that much abused term, a kind of honesty and transparency. And it's all grounded in communication and consent so that it it works. And what you notice and what you write about in your piece is that there are people out there who just like, oh, yeah, I, I'm fucking this other person now. I'm Polly. That's why I ghosted. That's why I disappeared. They use Polly to mean I owe you nothing. Precisely. But they still tend to have expectations of emotional commitment and sex. But then I find that Polly is an excuse for them not to reciprocate it fully. Yeah, that's a problem. There's a particular other kind of Polly problem that I've noticed that I wanted to bounce off you and see if you've heard of this or or encountered it. Uh, maybe it's because I read an advice column and people write me about their problematic encounters yeah. but or, or their problematic assumptions. But I, I get a lot of mail from married people, from men and women. This isn't just a dude thing mm-hmm. who, who tell me that they've suddenly realized after all these years in a committed monogamous marriage that they are poly and they regard that realization is a get out of that monogamous commitment I made so many years ago free card. So they come out as poly. Uh, and if their spouse, this person whom they made a monogamous commitment five, 10, 15 years ago, doesn't accept them. And what they mean by that is let them fuck other people. Yeah. Uh, they regard their spouse as this monster who doesn't accept them, doesn't respect their identity, doesn't uh, honor their polyamorous orientation, which requires them to start sleeping with other people. And they write to me, basically arguing that they've been wronged by the person to whom they made this monogamous commitment, who's not letting them out of that monogamous commitment just because they came out to them as poly. And I've, you know, letters, I have letters right here in front of me that I opened up before we got on the phone from people who, you know, they came out as poly. They want to start fucking other people. It's non-negotiable because poly is their identity and orientation and their spouse who wanted a monogamous relationship, made a monogamous commitment, sought somebody who they thought wanted the same things now wants a divorce and this person says, compares that spouse's reaction to a homophobic parent tossing their 15-year-old kid out on the street for coming out as gay. Yes. And it makes my blood boil yeah. when yeah. I read these letters. And I'm a proponent of polyamorous oh, uh, I relationships. I have, I have three main things I want to say about that. The first is a general blanket statement on not just marriage, but any long-term commitment you make with a person, you have to be a grown-up and understand that the person you marry, perhaps at age 30, is not going to be the same person in five or 10 years. We all keep growing and learning and changing. And if you're going to make a serious commitment, you have to understand that there needs to be room for us to grow and evolve together. The second main thing I would say is that I. Oh, but wait, let me jump in there for a second. But growing and evolving together often means uh, having to renegotiate the terms of the relationship at certain points. But that is a discussion that both people need to have in good faith. You can't just issue ultimatums and you both have to continue to buy into the relationship. And if the terms you want to set going forward are unacceptable to your partner, then hopefully you can part amicably, but you may get dumped. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, it it is okay. The I think because the truth is we're not. I think. Wait, wait. I mean, it's not okay. Of course, it's very painful. But no, if your okay. spouse wants to walk away from the relationship because the terms you're, you know, wanting to dictate are unacceptable to them, they have a right to do that. 
Well, something I, I'd love to talk about in general about polyamory is I'm just going to go ahead and say that I do think the majority of us struggle with monogamy to some degree. And if you're someone who has consistently had a hard time maintaining relationships because, excuse me, because monogamy does not come naturally to you. And all of a sudden you learn about, oh, this magical world of polyamory where you don't have to be monogamous. You might feel a lot of freedom and a lot of joy. And like you found yourself and you found a way to love and live and have sex that works for you. And that is really exciting but people, when they first hear about it, forget the hard work it demands. I mean, we're talking about the hard work and communication of one relationship. With polyamory, you're throwing in multiple relationships. So, before, yeah, so yeah. The people, the people out there who regard polyamory as somehow meaning they don't have to answer to anyone. Yeah, that ain't it. Polyamory means you answer to a couple someones or several someones and they answer to you too. You still have obligations. There are still commitments. That yeah. You're making there's someone, someone's there's, you know, your partner's someone, someone, someone's there's shared Google calendars. There's maintaining. <laughs> it's like, it's, it, it's, it can be very unsexy at times. And I would suggest if you're new to this, really doing your research, you know, basic books, um, ethical slot, opening up, um, sex before dawn, Dan, you've done lovely writing on this. And to remember that it isn't, you know, just like gender isn't binary, just like sexual orientation isn't binary, your options are not solely monogamy or polyamory. There is so much middle ground. And I like to say that for every couple, there is a relationship format that can work for you. And I would suggest going to a sex therapist that specializes in that or has experience with non-monogamy to try and work out an arrangement that works for both of you. And like you said, if at the end of the day, it you just grow in different directions, that's okay. But it is not this black and white yes or no. And I never think an ultimatum in a relationship is healthy. To be clear, we're talking about people who are misunderstanding and misusing the poly label here. We're yeah. not indicting actually polyamorous relationships, people who are nailing this. It's some people are using it as an excuse for bad behavior. Some people who newly come to accepting themselves as poly or realizing that polyamory would be a better relationship model for them are using it as a cudgel to beat their monogamous partners. And that's not okay either. It's about the misuse. It's about, it's about, yeah, it's about the misuse. And, you know, I don't think misuse makes you a sociopath. It could just mean that you need to do some research, but yeah, I have seen couple or people who have spent most of their life thinking they're horrible, unlovable people who through polyamory and hard work have found themselves and found beautiful families. And when done right, it can it can be really, really beautiful, but it's hard work. And um, I'm going to quote a sex therapist, David Ortman, I often interview. He says, polyamory, many are called, few conserved. And I think that sums it up pretty well. The article is, are some people just slapping the poly label on their cheating? Question mark. The answer is yes. It's written by Sophie St. Thomas. It was in Playboy earlier this year. You should check it out. Thank you for jumping on the phone, Sophie. It was a great combo. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a 21-year-old female college student, and I'm calling with a question that pertains not to me, but to my 16-year-old little brother. 
Um, he had his first girlfriend this summer and would come to me for advice about sex and hooking up. Talking about it with him was a little awkward, but I was more than happy to be there for him and answer his questions, and I felt really grateful that he was comfortable coming to me for information. Fast forward to now, several months later, him and his girlfriend have broken up. I come home for winter break from college, and he tells me he is poised to have a three-way with two girls in his grade, one of whom he barely knows. Apparently, he heard through the grapevine that they were interested. Who knows what that means? And somehow he communicated to them he was interested as well. I am shocked. I'm in total support of group sex endeavors for consenting adults, but I'm not sure any 16-year-old needs to be engaging in these kinds of activities, especially not my brother. He's both romantically and sexually relatively inexperienced, and I'm sure the experience of a threesome would be overwhelming to him on an emotional and logistical level. Entering into a threesome also requires lots of communication among all parties about expectations, boundaries, desires, protection, consent, etc., Conversations I'm not sure if my brother is equipped to have with one person, let alone two. Most importantly, he is not emotionally stable. He's experiencing intense mood swings and bouts of depression and is not an emotionally mature kid. I want to keep lines of communication open between us, so I tried to tell him some of my concerns in a laid-back and non-judgmental way, but I didn't think it really sunk in. When I told him I could see a lot of ways this could go wrong, he replied that he didn't see anything wrong with jumping into the mix. I'm not sure what mix he's referring to, but he thinks this experience might help him gain social capital. I think the social and emotional fallout from having a three-way in high school could be disastrous for him, and it's clear to me that he's not thought out the pros and cons with a clear head. How can I talk to him about this openly, yet also firmly communicate my reservations um, and help him navigate the crazy land of high school Hookups, temptations, confusions, I'm honestly a little bit at a loss for how to talk to him about this, but I feel it's important that I try since he's the one who's coming to me for information. It doesn't sound like you need my advice about how to talk to your little brother about his sex life. You are talking to your little brother. You sound frustrated that you haven't been able to talk your little brother out of this. And those are two different things. You can talk to him. Lines of communication are open. He's coming to you with questions. He's sharing this with you. And you are telling him that you think it's a bad idea. You are warning him that when it comes to three-way sex, there are more complications around consent and boundaries and making sure everyone's comfortable. And there's a lot to handle. You know, negotiating all those things with one person is difficult. Balancing the needs and desires of three people is somehow infinitely more complicated. All that said, you know, I lost my virginity in a three-way when I was 15 years old and I'm fine. I probably wasn't emotionally mature enough for it. I definitely wasn't emotionally mature enough for it. I wasn't derailed by it. I wasn't damaged by it. Uh, I didn't, however, have that three-way to earn social capital in my high school. And I think that's where you might really want to talk to your brother. If he's about to go have this sexual adventure for that reason, that is the wrong reason to have this kind of sexual adventure. If he is doing this for the bragging rights, that's a bad reason to have any kind of sex with any number of people at any age. There's only so much that you can do, however. You can share your concerns. You can hear him out. You can tell him you think it's a terrible idea and that he shouldn't do it. He still gets to make his own choices. He still gets to make his own mistakes. 
And that's frustrating to watch, you know, a teenager without a fully formed brain and some of the parts of the brain that aren't yet fully formed when someone is 16 years old are the the chunks of the brain that game out risk and potential negative consequences. So you might want to have a conversation with him about that and be his sounding board about risk and potential negative consequences if this experience goes south or is unpleasant. But then at the end of the day, only so much you can do. You can't nail the door to his bedroom shut. You can't stop him. You can't slap the dick out of his pants and make sure it can't happen. Eventually, you're going to have to let him make his own choices and make his own mistakes and then be there for him if indeed it does blow up or go badly to help him process it, to help him with the fallout if there's any fallout. But maybe there won't be any fallout any negative fallout, just as there wasn't any negative fallout for me really about that three-way I lost my virginity in so many years ago. Hi, Dan. Anis here. Uh, I'm a French-Canadian, 26 years old, male, cisgender, heterosexual, so just a good old uh, boring chap. I'm calling because I met with a girl lately, and I think I'm, I'm starting to develop romantic feelings towards her. Which is really understandable since since we really get along very well. We spend a lot of very romantic time together, going to dance, dance nights, dancing cheek to cheek, learning love songs on the guitar and playing them on shows for old disabled people. Just having so much, yeah, eye gazing and soft talking all the time. But we talked about this and she's not interested. Uh, I am. I'm not a friend zone hater or anything stupid like that. I know just having a nice time with her doesn't entitle me to a romantic story with her. Um, However, I just wonder what I should do for myself because I'm trying not to develop romantic feelings, but I still do. And I just can't make it otherwise. So should I keep that friendship? Is it worth the suffering of loving someone who doesn't love you back? Or should I end it now? When we're attracted to someone romantically and sexually, and they are not attracted to us, but they would like to be our friend, like to have a friendship. And of course, a romantic and sexual relationship also has a hopefully friendly component. There's a friendship aspect there. You enjoy spending time together. You enjoy socializing together. You enjoy hanging out. Uh, But it's more. And there's this desire for more. And when you want more than just that friendship aspect of the romantic and sexual relationship, when you want the romance and the sexual connection as well, it can be really painful to just have the friendship. And you don't want to be that asshole person who gets indignant about quote unquote being friend zoned. You don't have a right to anyone's romantic or sexual interest. And if it isn't there, if they don't feel that way for you, your anger or resentment isn't going to instill those feelings in them. And it is a bad idea to accept their friendship in the hopes that one day they will suddenly have a romantic or sexual interest in you. To weasel your way into their affections is a a bad strategy. And that's a friendship with, on one side, an ulterior motive at play that is poisonous and that will kill that person's even friendly feelings for you. All that said, if being someone's friend 
the friend of someone that you are romantically and sexually attracted to is painful for you, just as they have a right to express their disinterest in you romantically and sexually, you have a right to say, this friendship is painful because it's not a friendship that I want with you. And so settling for this, having just a friendly connection, at least right now, at least while I'm still harboring these or struggling with these romantic and sexual feelings for you, it's painful. It's painful for me to to be in this position. So I need to not, at least right now at this stage in our lives, be your friend. Maybe down the road, you know, after my sexual romantic interest burns off or you get involved with somebody else and I get involved with somebody else in a few years time, maybe we can circle back or, or we will reconnect. Fate will throw us back together or social media will throw us back together or our friendship circles will merge at some point and we will reconnect and we'll be at a point in our lives at that point where a friendship is possible and not painful. You have a right to say that. People have a right to put you in the quote-unquote friend zone. That is not a violation. And you have a right to say, friendship isn't what I want. And friendship, at least right now, isn't in the cards for us because it's too painful for me. Hey, Dan. Uh, Caller from Birmingham, Alabama here with a question about whether or not my father needs to tell my mother about something that happened recently. So a little bit of backstory, probably over a year now, my dad cheated on my mom and it was a big deal for my mom, uh, but they made it through it. They went to counseling and uh, worked it out. Just yesterday, I got a text from my sister saying that my dad has been fired from his 30 plus year position at a certain global Catholic network Uh, that is stationed in Alabama. And the reason for this is he was watching porn on his phone that belonged to said network. So my question is, so my dad hasn't told my mother about this yet. And being Catholic, she is uh, very staunchly against porn. And I've even asked her straight up before if, she would consider it cheating for herself to call another man attractive. And she said, yes, point blank. Yes, I consider that cheating. So I feel like she would consider it cheating to know that dad has been watching porn on his phone. And I'm, my question for you is, do you feel like it is something that my dad needs to disclose to my mother or not? I don't think so. I think that if dad needs to watch some porn to get his rocks off, then he's fucking welcome to do that. I don't think that he needs to tell mom. I think that it would be okay for him to, in this instance, maybe a little bit of lying is okay. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on this. Uh, Dad is also Catholic. I am not. They both know that. I want to tell him, don't tell mom. She doesn't need to know. Just keep it more discreet. I'm just going to read the lead paragraph in a story in the New York Times from December 19th. The Catholic Church in Illinois withheld the names of at least 500 priests accused of sexual abuse of minors, the state's attorney general said Wednesday, in a scathing report that accused the church of failing victims by neglecting to investigate their allegations. Good to know the Catholic Church is right on top of 
old married men who watched a little porn at work. Those guys lose their jobs instantaneously. Catholic priests, however, who rape children, the Catholic Church will go to no end. The Catholic Church will defend those guys. The Catholic Church will hide their names from authorities. The Catholic Church will do anything to protect the rapist priest. It's the uh, old married man who watched a little porn on his computer at work who's got to go. As I like to say, as I frequently say on Twitter, if kids got raped by clowns as often as they get raped by preachers and priests, it would be illegal to take your children to the circus. All right. Your dad should lie to your mother because your mother is fucking crazy. (laughs) I'm sorry to be blunt about that, but if your mother regards just acknowledging, just saying that another man is attractive as an infidelity, if she believes that's cheating, that's fucking crazy. And, you know, sometimes you end up in long-term relationships with people who have slightly crazy, irrational beliefs. And what do you do? It puts you in a position where you can't be completely honest with that person. Sometimes loving a person means lying to a person a little bit, letting them have their insecurities or their irrationalities and stepping around them. And this definitely qualifies. Your dad watched a little bit of porn, rubbed one out, and unfortunately lost his job. Unlike those 500 rapist priests in Illinois who were preying on children, they didn't lose their jobs. Their names were hidden. Their positions were protected. They probably moved to new parishes. Your dad loses his job though. Doesn't need to tell mom why. Doesn't need to tell mom that he was watching pornography. Particularly doesn't need to tell your mom that considering that your mom's definition of cheating is so expansive and so irrational that your dad is just off the hook there. And a a final note, if you define absolutely everything as cheating, you're going to get cheated on a lot. Your dad had an affair. That's not okay. He cheated on your mother. In reality, looking at a little bit of pornography isn't cheating. Don't even get me started on the whole micro-infidelities bullshit that some people are out there pushing right now. We define cheating as an unforgivable offense, as always and everywhere, or a relationship extinction level event. Then we define Absolutely everything is cheating. And then we wonder why so many people are getting divorced and so many relationships are collapsing. It is insanity. Anyway, dad should lie to mom and you and your sister should run interference for dad on this point because your mother is not being rational. And now your tweets. Lucretia2014 tweets, hey, at fake Dan Savage, I've been waiting to hear your opinion on Boy Erased on the hashtag Savage Lovecast. Such an important topic. Love the show and you. I'm sorry to say that I haven't yet seen this film. I will try to see this film and I will try to talk about it in an upcoming show. Tim Douglas tweets, a very helpful suggestion. The caller with the boyfriend who won't use deodorant for his BO might want to look into the natural salt stick type. Deodorant can have harsh chemicals and cause painful breakouts and blisters. I can attest that the salt mineral ones work and don't have the bad side effects. And Laura Richards tweets, I was just telling my boyfriend about the doggity style caller and he told me he had a friend who divorced her husband because he thought all positions but missionary were disgusting. So I guess it could happen. If you want us to read one of your tweets on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now some response calls. Hi, Dan and crew. 
this is a response for the um, the woman in episode 635 whose um, long-distance boyfriend laid on her that she was only going to be living with him half the time because he was going to be moving for school. First of all, I'm really sorry. Um, you sound really distressed. Second, I think Dan was pretty much right on with everything except for the fact that if he's not living with you half the time, that means he has to live somewhere else half the time, which presumably means two rents. Maybe I'm just a cynic, but I think this guy is in it to have you split rent with him and save money. So yes, you should definitely break this lease. Let him eat that cost of having two rents, one, to serve him a lesson for being a prick and inconsiderate, and two, yeah, you're going to have a little bit of financial pain, but consider it a down payment on getting over the emotional pain of this breakup. You are well rid of him. You can do a lot better, girl. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode number 635 about the caller whose friend is experiencing domestic violence. Love the show, but your advice was way off on this one. I work as an advocate who helps survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence, and I wanted to offer a different perspective. The caller's friend is not the one who's playing sick, twisted games like you suggested. That would actually be the abusive boyfriend. Abusive people are extremely manipulative and use many different tactics to control and hurt their partners. It's so common for people in abusive relationships to stay because of the extreme manipulation they experience. Even if the really bad times include almost dying, the abuser has a way of sucking their partner back in and making them feel loved and cared for. Domestic violence happens within the cycle. There's the tension building phase, explosion phase, and rebonding phase. It sounds like that's exactly what this woman is experiencing. It can take many attempts to leave an abusive relationship before the person is able to get out, and that's not the fault of the survivor at all. It sounds like the caller was asking how to best support her friend, but Dan, your response was a heavy dose of victim blaming. I would start by offering your friend the number to a domestic violence hotline. Trained advocates can talk to her and give her the the support she needs and deserves. Let her know that you are worried about her emotional and physical safety and that you are there to help her when she is ready. Supporting people experiencing domestic violence can be exhausting and secondary trauma is real. So take care of yourself and set boundaries if you need to. Domestic violence hotlines are usually for friends and loved ones too. Feel free to call them to process your own feelings or to brainstorm ways to best support your friend. Good luck and I hope your friend is able to leave when she's ready. Hey Dan, I'm calling about the power bottom who pisses everywhere when he gets fucked by huge dicks. It made me think about squirters who I've been with and how fucking stoked I get when someone squirts, when a woman I'm with squirts. And I don't know, I think it's cool that he pisses everywhere, but maybe like drink a bunch of coconut water beforehand if he's going to take a huge cock so his piss isn't quite as yellow because I could see that being a problem. Anyway, good luck and fuck yeah. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 206- 3022064. Happy New Year and in the New Year we have some live shows coming up all across the country. Portland, Oregon, Vancouver, Seattle, Denver, San Francisco, Chicago, Madison, and Minneapolis. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on events for dates and tickets. Follow me on Twitter at fake dan savage. Follow Sophie St. Thomas on Twitter at the Bowie Cat. And a big thank you to Sarah from Early to Bed, Chicago's feminist sex shop. Follow them on Twitter at Early to Bed. And if you are in Chicago, drop in on them at 5044 North Clark Street. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 
Thank you for downloading.